0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 70. It's Operation Iskari and 61MEC has fulfilled the first part of the plan driving Fapla out of Kotevi and they're now approaching Kahama, which is 96 kilometres northwest of Zangongo. This was going to be a tough nut to crack. Fapla's 2nd Brigade was ensconced in strongly fortified positions to the north and the south of the town. The defenders also had become used to SADF and SAA force attacks. If you remember during Operation Protea, The Air Force had hammered radar installations at Kahama and the Reki spent a lot of time around the little town. So after years of battering, defences had been beefed up, bunkers were deeper, heavier weapons abounded. This was going to be the first time that the SADF would attack Kahama directly on the ground with the aim of seizing it. Morale in the town was high prior to Askari. Fapla and the Swapo units there knew that the new T-5455 tanks were a real threat to the Rattles and South Africa's mechanized troops, and the Angolans had also installed updated missile systems around the town. Commandant Van Lil was about to take over command of Task Force X-Ray and had been briefed by Major General George Mayring. Part of the long-term mission he was told was to cut off Kahama's power and water. The top brass, as I said last episode, were obsessing about overpowering the Angolans, besieging them until they broke. However, the Angolans this time were determined not to break. So the two combat groups of Task Force X-ray, which consisted of mechanized companies of 20 millimeter rifles, one motorized company with buffles, an armored car squadron, five troops of 90 mm rifles, and a 20 millimeter aircraft section, along with one Reki regiment, engineers, four SA medical service sections or elements as they were called, four 81 millimeter mortar groups of two each and four more sections of Parabats and buffles that were ready to move against Kahama. I have to list the artillery here. The G4 155mm World War II era guns had been 61 mech go-to but were already outdated. Their range was 24km. X-Ray also had a Romeo battery with its 127mm multiple rocket launchers, and Sierra with eight 140mm G2 guns, the newly installed 61 mech artillery. Because of the more accurate spotting capabilities of the South Africans, they generally outperformed Fapler and Swapo's artillery, but not always. Fapler had the D31 22mm howitzer, but its range was limited to just over 15km, while the BM21 mounted on Ural trucks could strike targets at a maximum of around 21km away. The other guns that they would bring to bear against the South Africans, however, included the 130mm with a range of 27km, distancing the SADF's 155mm. Their D-30 cannons meant that every time the SADF fired off a salvo, they would have to withdraw in the face of a salvo from FAPLA. And the other Soviet weapons used by FAPLA included the D-74-122mm, which could strike targets 22km away, and its 76mm gun with a range of 13km. The G-4 guns the SADF were dragging around the roads in the main, and this was not the usual SADF attack logic. Fapla and the Cubans tended to use the roads around southern Angola. The South Africans preferred to bundu bash to keep the Angolans guessing. This is not a reflection on the gunners, nor the men who kept the G4 firing. It was a fact of design weakness. The Israelis had converted a World War II and Korean War weapon to a useful device for desert or semi-desert warfare. Its wheels were woeful in tough African muddy conditions. Busy in the air through most of November and December 1983, was the SA Air Force's Gadda remote piloted vehicle, RPV, or drone, and it had discovered the location of enemy SA-8 missile systems. The photographs it produced were blurry, but the location was clear. They were in positions around the town. Brigadier joep Yobert, who commanded all SADF forces during Askari, expected these defenders to wilt as the pressure rose through December and into January 1984. He just needed time to do this, and time was not on his side. Another issue arose at this point which is not that well known. The SAD forces attacking Kwetevi Molondo and Kahama, in other words, the 61 mech combat group in the main, were the focus, along with a second attack planned on Kuvelai. However, in what turned out to be jaw-dropping miscommunication, the planners forgot to inform the Air Force about combat team Delta Foxtrot, which was around 45 kilometers southwest of Kaundo on the western bank of the River. That was around 130 kilometers east of the main target of Kuvalai, and even in a puma or a mirage, that's a long way to go to offer support. Air Force Commander Dick Lord was told about this combat team at the last minute, after Operation Askari had begun. He was told merely that they were the Deception Force from Section Two Zero back in Southwest Africa. This was not part of the main assault. The Air Force, meanwhile, had drawn up no plans to support these men, and the SADF was going to pay for their haphazard attention to detail. Delta Foxtrot included a company of four infantry platoons from 202 Battalion, a company from 7 SAI, one armoured car troop, one 81mm mortar troop, a section of engineers and a 20mm anti-aircraft troop, as well as four SA-7 teams. Later, a company from one parachute battalion and another from 32 battalion joined in, along with a battery of 120mm mortars. Colonel Dion Ferreira, a.k.a. Delta Foxtrot, commanded the force. He was Sector 2-0 commander back in South West Africa and a former commander of 3-2 Battalion. So, this force of around 360 soldiers on 35 buffels, along with a couple of hundred soldiers from Southwest Africa's Sector 2-0, were sent in as a diversion. The problem with the whole idea is that the force ended up acting less as a single unit and more like a splintered group. Let me explain. On the 18th of December, an infantry platoon and two SA-7 teams riding in three biffles from Delta Foxtrot were outside the main defensive perimeter. It's not clear how they ended up getting themselves in this pickle. Apparently, on the night of 19th and 20th December, FAPLA reconnaissance units detected the force, then observed this isolated platoon. FAPLA command sent at least a company, but some say more like two companies of soldiers, to attack the missing platoon and killed five members, capturing one South West African Territorial Force soldier, as well as 13 light machine guns and an assortment of other weapons, three of the vital radios with codes, a 60mm mortar and three buffles. The SAGF claimed later it was only one, but that's because the Angolans displayed only one of the three for the world media. This was the first time that FAPLA had captured any of the South Africans' vital armoured cars intact, and they wasted no time in showing off their new prize. The plans then changed. The SA Air Force switched their main ops further east to Kaundo instead of concentrating on Kahama and Bolondo, and this was in order to recover the fallen soldiers' bodies. These were recovered a day later during a follow-up operation with Air Force Impalas and Barrages assisting. However, the sudden departure from the blueprint meant less air cover for X-ray and other combat groups, and things unraveled to a certain extent for the South Africans. Kawunda remained intact despite being pounded for three weeks by the SAF with Canberras and mirages, as well as intermittent SADF ground attacks. FAPLA's 53rd Brigade was holding fast, and this turned into a major propaganda coup for the Angolans. While this poorly planned diversion continued to play out further east, in the center of operations around Kahama, X-Ray's artillery took up positions on the 21st of December. They were laying a trap for FAPLA with the 142 and Q batteries in positions east of the town, while the rest of 61 mech lined up to the north. Unlike Opsprotea, the defenders were now fully aware that the South Africans were probably going to assault their town from the north. As General Constant Fulun had been warning, when you fight an enemy for long enough without a clear victory, the enemy learns all your tricks. Still there was some hope. The SA artillery was going to use a new piece of advanced electronic equipment called the Invals Mark I, a strange device that measured sound and distance, also known as the Kurklos. These were set up at fifteen hundred meter points to observe the effect of the artillery and the enemy's response. At twenty hundred hours on the night of the twenty first of December, the artillery began firing at Kahama with the G fours and one forty millimeter guns, otherwise known as 5.5s five by Vets. The barrels were five and a half inch in diameter, and part of South Africa's armory from the Second World War. Enemy artillery replied immediately, and the South Africans had to leap into their trenches and foxholes. Soon the Fapla 122mm rockets were picked out and silenced, but the enemy BM-21 rocket launchers continued blasting away and could not be stopped. The fighting continued the next day in scenes reminiscent of the desert combat during World War II, where artillery duels were waged. The strategy shifted once more. It became clear that FAPLA was going nowhere. On the 23rd of December, and about two kilometers west of Kahama, the SA Air Force drone was hit by shrapnel from an SA-8 ground-to-air missile. The operators managed to keep the RPV in the air, and then it headed back to Zangongo, where it landed safely. The idea now was for the SADF to try and secure the area and perhaps seize one of the strategically important SAM-8 missile systems located around Kahama. Brigadier Yubair and his commanders had ordered a sub operation called Fox, which was a tactical mission, really. The idea was to carry out air and artillery strikes on various positions around the town, then try to draw the SAM 8 operators into the open and lay their hands on this weapon. The main part of that op kicked off on Christmas Eve, 24th of December 1983, with one of X Ray's combat groups wheeling off to the left, then heading south of Kahama. Spotter planes picked up that half a dozen or so FAPLA T-54-55 tanks began to move close to this group. Sierra battery supporting 61 mech's ground forces began opening fire on the tanks, or where they thought they were, but then were ordered to break contact, but not before one of the tanks was hit. Waves of BM-21 rockets were now flying into the South African positions, and two of the combat groups moved back to avoid being targets. Then two Impala jets attacked targets around Molondo using 68mm rockets. The weather was bad, and cumulonimbus clouds abounded, which caused issues with accuracy, and one of them, impalers flown by Lt. Niels Mankies was hit by a shoulder-fired SAM missile. He managed to make it back to Andungwa with a damaged tail. Things were going badly on the International Diplomatic Front, and SADF Chief Constant Falyun showed up at the front on the 24th of December, warning that South Africa was under pressure. He said the fighting may have to stop by the 31st of December, and Ops' headquarters officers immediately said that the entire nature of Escari would have to change. Kuvelai had always been on the list of targets, but now it was believed that because of Fapla's determination to hold the town, it must be a key location in Swapo's armed wing plan's infiltration offensive. You heard last episode how Plan was putting together a major infiltration project for 1984 so it's natural that the strategic aim should be amended. What was not going to be acceptable was the shoddy intelligence provided to the commanding officers of the task force. The artillery duels continued around Kahama on the 29th of December as these two armies fought tit for tat when a rifle received a direct hit from a Soviet D-31-22mm howitzer killing a soldier. This attritional style of fighting was not what the SADF was good at, but the South Africans weren't going to give up so easily and then swung around to attack from the southeast. They were still after the SA 8s, but the task force once again found itself under extremely heavy artillery fire. 142 Battery responded in kind. By now, the artillery duels had been going on for almost two weeks, with neither side giving an inch nor succeeding in dislodging the other. Hubert and his planners were trying to cope with the situation as they attempted to winkle out the eights, but to no avail. There was something else that was frustrating the SADF commanders. Unlike previous invasions, this time the Angolan foray had not led to an obvious victory. The speculation by the veterans that this was the main reason why the campers, the Omana, as they were called, citizen force men, were going to be thrown into an attack repeatedly that left many dead. New orders were issued by the 28th of December. Everything had to speed up. No more probing attacks and artillery duels at distance. It was time to attack Kahama head on. X-Ray's commander Van Lil received his new orders on the 29th of December. He was told to attack Kahama from the south and capture the elusive SA-8. Van Lil watched his sappers complete a Bailey Bridge over the Kunene River on the 31st and then 61 MEC crossed the river the first river crossing of this type by the S.A.D.F. since the Second World War. Later they entered a fierce engagement, and Van Lille told Leopold Scholz that the enemy's warning system was good, and they waited for us. When we came within range of their artillery, we drew heavy fire. My mortar platoon was in buffles, and a mortar bomb fell inside one buffel. Three were killed, four were wounded. Farpler's 82mm mortar bomb had hit a tree over the buffel and the shrapnel had peppered everyone inside there was little cover for the south africans approaching kahama and the sadf attack stalled well before the enemy's defense line meanwhile the sa air force bombarded the town again but FAPLA had designed deep bunkers they were used to being hit by the 1000 pound fused bombs dropped by the cameras then to the south africans surprise fapola launched a counterattack this was the first time in the entire border war Their artillery barrage was significant and then they forced the South Africans to retreat. It wasn't long before things got very hot indeed. At 1,600 hours, the combat group was attacked by six T-54-55 tanks and at least two companies of FOPLA infantry. Apart from the Biffle, however, this assault went very badly for the Angolans. SA vets say they destroyed at least two of the tanks at a range of 1,200 meters. Others say it could have been six. The official report says two. The terrain was suitable for tank warfare, it was open and undulating, and instead of digging their tanks in as stationary gun platforms, Fapler was now using their armoured weapons in the manner designed. The rifle 90s which faced these tanks had come up against a serious opponent, but once again, the fact that the rifle could turn quicker and move faster in the bush was its saving grace. Also, the excellent SADF training began to tell in the midst of this full frontal attack. Remember, the difference was all about initiative. Where the Soviet-trained FOPLA commanders followed strict policies imbued with lashings of political correctness, the South Africans could respond far more creatively to every situation, and they had a long history of doing this. It could lead to chaos, but the advantage of having NCOs and officers who think out of the box is that the enemy doesn't know what you're going to do next. The Angolans were wooden by comparison. And yet, looking at the armaments, you'd have to bet on the Angolans. The T-54-55 was a real threat to the rattles. It had better armor and a more powerful gun. They should have destroyed the rattles, but they just couldn't hit them. Van Lille then apparently offered to conduct what would have been a suicide assault and could have easily led to a loss of one company of men. Folks, some of these reports are difficult to verify, but a senior signals officer claims Van Lille's suggestion was rejected by Brigadier Jobe, who ordered an immediate withdrawal from Gahama instead. X-Ray's Combat Team 1 evacuated the area and then regrouped back at Zangongo for the next mission, and that was Kuvalai, where they were going to join Task Force Victor. It was now New Year's Eve 1983, and Task Force Victor had been fighting at Kuvelai since the 16th of December. Canberras and other aircraft had dropped hundreds of bombs on the town. By the 31st of December, the ground assault was ready. It was D-Day for Commandant Piet Greleng, Task Force Victor's officer commanding. His combat teams drove towards their jump-off point, which was set for midday, and they headed off early that morning in extended column formation to the northwest of Kuvulai. The official report seems to indicate it was northeast, but vets say it was not where they launched their attack. One of the strategic points was a narrow bridge over the Kuvulai River, which was dry for much of the year, but the river bank is undercut and steep, making it difficult for vehicles to traverse, and at this time it was muddy and virtually inaccessible because of heavy rains. According to 3-2 vet Maria Skippers, Kreiling wanted to change the plan of attack, but HQ wouldn't let him. His other problem was that there was low-hanging cloud, so no top cover for his formation. This was not a normal situation. The SAD of ground troops and air force operated as one and had developed a very high level of cooperation since those earlier ops in the 1970s. No, said HQ, he had to attack immediately. So, Graelung ordered the 127mm multiple rocket launchers to be set up 15km west of Kuvelai and then sent a reserve force of a couple of hundred men south of the town. Two other combat teams were to assault the town from the northwest crossing the Kuvelai River. A third group of 90mm Irland armored cars drew the short straw, so to speak. They were sent to oppose the t 55s This, of course, was not a fair fight. The Noddy cars had done their share of fighting for 10 years in the bush, but the latest Soviet equipment was far superior. What HQ didn't know back in southwest Africa was that the Kuvelai River was flowing. During the dry season, the riverbed is dry, but during summer season, it's another matter altogether. A number of things now began to go wrong. The wet weather caused his Ilan's problems, and the biffles and even the much-vaunted rattles bogged down. Still... Combat Team 1 formed up in their extended line to the left of the command vehicle, and Combat Team 2 in an extended line to the right, both facing southeast. The idea was to drive the Fopla force out of town and up to the Kublai River. Once again, this looked very good to the top brass on their maps, but the T-54 55 tanks could just cross the river, whereas the Rattles couldn't, and Fopla, of course, could just wade across. Another problem was the Kalonga River, a smaller stream nearby, to the right of the combat teams, to the west, in other words. That was also apparently impassable. So while Fapla was being driven into a confined space, so were the South Africans. Combat Team 1 took the lead at this time, Combat 2 behind. That was 20 rattles along with 8 more behind, followed by 81mm mortar teams heading through the thick muddy bush towards a heavily defended target without air cover. You can see where this is going. The fire teams were also mismatched. For a start, the two platoons in Combat Team 2 under Lotter were fully sized. He had been ordered to send another full-sized platoon ahead to Combat Team 1. This is where the good news ended. The rest of Combat Team 1 were Citizen Force Omana, part-timers, and they were not full strength. Each section climbing out of these 28 rattles was supposed to be comprised of a section leader, a 2IC, at least four riflemen, and a machine gunner. The smaller sections could be half the size. Now in Combat 2, leader Lotte was trying to find the Erland 90s, which were supposed to be travelling through the bush on his left flank. It was a tense 12 kilometres of slashing through the bush before the actual fighting was to start. Then Shoners caused the vehicles to bog down and they had to be pulled out by the recovery vehicles, the mud causing more havoc. As these stop-starts increased, the mortar team waltzed past their armoured protection, seemingly unaware that they now had turned into the advance force, the strike unit, so to speak, whereas they obviously usually operate behind attacking infantry. It was in this shoddy formation that the task force approached the first Fapla trenches, which were well hidden and heavily defended. All hell broke loose. Inside the rattles, the hatches were all open and the troops were standing upright looking through the bush. The standard SADF approach was to string out two combat teams in a single line of rattles across the area to be attacked, with the third team in a second line behind, if you can imagine in your mind's eye how this looks. FAPLA opened fire on the straggly group with 23mm anti-aircraft guns, no one is quite sure how many, before Combat Team 1 beat a hasty retreat. 14.5mm AA guns also began opening up on the rattles, the sound of these, particularly the 23mm, is described as similar to a 500cc motorcycle being kick started. Graling's men were also firing at once, and then they were shocked to see T 54 55 tanks approaching through the bush. A furious gunfight at close range developed, and the SADF 81mm mortar teams managed to let off a few bombs. This all took place in an amazing five minutes. Most of the troops on board the Rattles did not have time to disembark, the usual technique in an attack was to leap out and take up defensive positions. It was now 1,300 hours, and a rifle sent forward to spot, for the mortar team was hit in the turret by an armor-piercing round. Its commander, 2nd Lieutenant Pete Liebenbach, was killed. He was the first soldier to die in the attack on Kuvelai 1, as this battle became known. Later transpired, although the SADF deny this, that he was killed by a friendly fire. It's a very long story, so I'll keep it short. Lotta, who was in a nearby rattle, later tested the hole in the rattle with a 20mm round and found it fitted perfectly. Farpler were using 23mm AA weapons. This is the story of war and not a finger-pointing exercise. You can imagine the carnage of that battle, the chaos. These things happen. The important thing to note right now for the SADF attacking Kuvelai was Liebenbach's death meant the mortars no longer had any idea where to fire. They were still operating in the front of their combat team and were trying to avoid being casualties themselves. Then Rifleman Khalifari died as he jumped from his buffle that had come under heavy fire from one of FAPLA's 23mm or 14.5mm AA guns. The fighting became more and more bitter. Two more SADF soldiers died when an RPG-7 hit the turret of their rifle. Then four more were wounded as they jumped down from a buffle. A Cuban force with Russian advisers ambushed another section close by, and in another friendly fire incident, one of the riflemen fired his R4 inside a rattle, wounding four of his colleagues. Greiling, meanwhile, was told by Yubei to press home the attack. The commander of Task Force Victor knew this was suicide for his men, so he ignored the order and withdrew about two kilometers back northwest. Combat Team 2 under Lotte formed a defensive perimeter, and Combat Team 1 managed to extricate themselves from a very serious situation. But the pain, was not over for Task Force Victor, not by a long shot. What happened next is for our next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It makes the series more visible. We can head off to abwarpodcast.com, email me from there, or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, fussbait.